As the bucket passes your row, if you've got your Bible, you can snag it and open to the book of Exodus. We're going to start today in chapter 7. As you see, we are going to be doing communion at the end of service today. In fact, if you're worshiping with us online, we want to give you a heads up so you've got a a moment to grab whatever element you can. That might be a a saltine and some apple juice uh, or... Whatever. Uh, It it is not about the symbol. It is about what the symbol represents. Uh, And so get some elements available for yourself if you're worshiping online. Um, We're in a series called Greater. Uh, And what we are seeing is we're kind of comparing and contrasting God in the Old Testament with these surrounding gods, uh, with, with these people that are the, these, these idols that were worshipped by the neighboring people in Israel. Um, and how God demonstrates in these skirmishes, in these battles, in these scenes, his greatness. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Elijah on Mar- Mount Carmel in, in 1 Kings chapter 18. And we saw this very famous scene where God demonstrates he is greater than Baal or Baal Hadad, as we, as we learned, uh, is truly the, the God that he was demonstrating his superiority over. Then again, in 1 Kings 20, we saw, uh, in fact, Ben Hadad, this king of Aram, this one who was called the son of this false god. Uh, comes to battle against Israel, and God demonstrates his goodness even for King Ahab, even for this wicked king, this, this God, king who had already been rejected by God. God still moves on his behalf to show his goodness. Today we're going to go backwards in the Old Testament, back to probably, I would say, arguably the most famous section of the Old Testament. I don't know that any part of the Old Testament is more well-known than the story of Moses. We had, obviously, Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, if you've got some gray in your hair and your beard. Uh, we had Prince of Egypt, if you're a little bit younger, uh, which that was still before he was born, uh, but uh, right around the time, you, were, you might have been two, uh, actually, if I do the math right. Um, there, there have been movies like big blockbuster Hollywood movies made about these stories. In fact, I was going to show you a clip from Prince of Egypt today, uh, but you'll have to go home and watch it for yourself uh, on DVD, that's right, on VHS. Um, so, uh, these are very well-known scenes, but what I want to do, we're going to look at the plagues of Egypt. Um, and for time's sake, I, I'm not going to have time to go into all of these different gods because each plague hit at a different Egyptian god. Uh, Each plague was a direct strike by our God, by Yahweh, uh, against these false gods. For time's sake, we're only going to look at one of them, but we're going to look at a few of the different scenes just to kind of get a a picture of what's happening here. I'm going to try to be on the gas because I want to make sure we have plenty of time to, to reflect and take communion together at the end. Um, So we're going to pick up the story in chapter 7. Before we get there, um, I did have a question come in last week uh, where where somebody came to me and actually was on behalf of their spouse and was like, look, they don't really understand what you're talking about with all these false gods, with these idols. Can can you, they've gotten very confused. Can you talk about this a little bit more? So let me address false gods as we begin. Um, These false gods you need to understand, have some real power. False gods have real power. In fact, false gods are false in two main ways. If you put that up on, on the screen for us, if you have it. Um, false gods, number one, um, they do not rival the real God. So they have some power, but they do not rival the real God. So they're false because they are, they are lesser. 
Um, they, they, they don't amount to what he has. Secondly, they're false because they're not who they claim to be. So, so how do I say they have real power? Does this idol, does this piece of stone or this piece of wood that someone worships, does that have power? No. But the gods behind them most of the time are actual demons. Um, now, they're not who they claim to be. They're not Baal-Hadad, and they're not uh, the gods that we'll look at in Egypt. They're, they're not Ra and, and all of these others. But they are actual spirit beings that have actual spiritual power. Uh, if you look at a, a religion like Hindu, uh, the, the Hindu faith has literally tens of thousands of gods, like a, a limitless number of gods. There is a god of everything, a god of every tree, a god of every river, uh, a god of, of everything in nature. There's a god to worship, to bow down to, to sacrifice to for that. Um, and if you study Hindu, uh, you find out that there's some real supernatural stuff that happens. Um, those things are real. They're not good. Uh, and so these false gods in the Old Testament have some real power. In fact, we're going to see some real power demonstrated by these Egyptian gods in this story. Uh, we're going to see the Bible actually talk about certain things that these uh, these magicians, they call them, uh, that serve Pharaoh, that they're able to conjure up some supernatural stuff to, at the beginning, as things start, they're, they're able to do things almost on the same level of what God does. Uh, and so God just keeps upping the ante uh, and, and demonstrates, okay, a little superiority here, major superiority here, total annihilation here. Just goes one level to the next. And, and so we need to understand there is a spirit world, uh, and there is demonic power. There is an antichrist who will come one day who will literally raise from the dead in front of the whole world, and people are going to say, whoa, this is him. This is the Messiah. This is the one. Why? Because Satan has power. Uh, because there is power in darkness. And so, yes, these are false gods. They are not God. We believe in one God. These are demons. Why, what, what does that mean? It means they were created. He was not. He, he created angels. Some of the angels fell and turned against God, and they became demons. And so uh, all of these demonic gods are lesser because they're created just like us. They are lesser beings than the one who created them. So all that being said, with that as a little bit of a preface, um, let's give one one more piece of background before we get into it. The difference today and the rest of these scenes that we look at, in fact, next week we're going to go to Daniel, uh, and, and we're going to see another scene. We're going to fast forward in the Old Testament much closer to the time of Jesus. We're going to see another time where God demonstrates his superiority, his greatness. Um, in all of these other scenes that we've looked at, we're basically talking about one battle. We're talking about one scene, about one kind of climactic moment. Um, in Egypt, we don't see a battle. We see a war. We see a series of battles between God and these demonic gods, these false gods, these Egyptian gods. Uh, and so this is a, a lot to cover. So we're going to be on the gas. We're going to skip over a lot of sections. I can't read you the whole story today. This could absolutely be a whole series. Uh, but today it's going to be one message. Uh, so there's three phases to this war. Uh, the phases are this. Number one, the Egyptian powers challenge God. They don't believe that, that God has the authority. God's going to say, hey, let my people go. And they're like, you know what? Who are you 
to tell me I'm the Pharaoh. I'm the king over the greatest empire on earth. Who is your little God whose people are in slavery? He's got no authority. He's got no strength. He's got no power. So the first is they challenge God. The second phase we'll see is that they are surprised by God. These Egyptian powers are surprised by God, number two. Um, And then number three, ultimately, we'll see the Egyptian powers actually recognize God. It becomes undeniable to them who he is because of what he does. Um, Our first scene we'll pick up in Exodus chapter 7. God has called Moses to go before Pharaoh and say, set my people free. Let my people go. Uh, We know this whole story is literally historically true, but it is also metaphorically representative of you and me. That all of us were slaves to sin. That all of us were in bondage, and so God sent his son to rescue us, to redeem us, to set us free. So everything Moses does is symbolic of Jesus. It's a foreshadow of what Jesus has done for us spiritually. So we see in in Exodus chapter 7, Moses uh, is, is very insecure. That's not like Jesus. Jesus is not insecure. Moses was insecure. So Moses gets called, and Moses says, no, you got the wrong guy. Uh, you, you, you use anybody else, don't use me. And then he makes this excuse, says, well, I stutter. How am I going to go before Pharaoh and say anything? And so God says, use your brother. So Moses' his brother Aaron goes with him as his mouthpiece, as the one to speak for him. So verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went up to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian musicians all did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff and it became a snake. So what do we see? False gods have real power. I don't believe this is a magic trick. I don't think this is a, this is not David Blaine. This is not David Copperfield. I guess David's a good name for a magician. Uh, This is not one of those people, right, like that are just producing an optical illusion. They're literally throwing down their staff, and the staff is literally turning into a snake. False gods have real power, but the story doesn't stop there. It says, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So they were able to make their staff into a snake, but they weren't able to make their staff into the king snake. Aaron had the king snake. He he had the trump card. Why? Because he was serving the true God, the real God. Um, It said, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord has said. There's going to be a theme throughout the story. Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. Pharaoh's heart becomes hard. Later in the story, it's actually said that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's rejected God enough times that he reaches the point where like, God's like, well, I'm not even going to let you soften your heart. Um, that should be a pretty good warning to all of us about turning a deaf ear to the Holy Spirit. There's a point where we can give God the finger enough times where God says, okay, you can have what you want. God is good, and he pursues us, and he chases after us, but there's a point where he says, this is clearly what you want, so I'm going to let you have what you want. God forbid any of us ever gets to that point where we turn that deaf ear so many times to the true, holy, righteous, loving, forgiving God. So we see this demonstration of God's superiority, first of all, here in the throne room 
of Pharaoh. We're going to see it again. We're going to fast forward past the first plague. The first plague is the plague of blood uh, that Moses and Aaron, through God's power, actually turn all of the water in Egypt into blood. We're going to skip that one for time's sake and jump ahead to Exodus chapter 8. In Exodus chapter 8, we get to the second plague. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your country. Uh, We have an above-ground swimming pool, uh, and we have frogs who like to hang out around our pool. Um, And I know after this experience, the plague of frogs has to be causing a shudder up my wife's spine right now. She's doing live stream. Uh, so shout out to Melody. Because uh, she, she's not a fan of the frogs. Uh, we, we have one child who's not a fan of the frogs and two children that love the frogs. Uh, uh, Alexa and Noah are all in on Team Frog. Uh, in fact, Noah, when he gets in the, fo- the pool, he'll report to us if there's any froggy friends. Uh, I have two froggy friends today, Dad. Uh, and I'm like, uh, you know, he, he holds these frogs. It's amazing, like, how much he can get away with, but he, he's a little too rough with them. Like, he'll squeeze them, they'll start chirping. I'm like, dude, you, they're going to die. Uh, like, <laughs> let's not take out wrath on your froggy friends. Uh, he's three years old. He gets a little excited. Um, so there's this plague that comes of frogs. Uh, and, and it sounds kind of ridiculous, really, to imagine that frogs are a plague, but if you can imagine this room full of frogs, uh, it becomes a little hard to pay attention to what God is saying, uh, right? It becomes a little difficult to partake in everything going around if there's just frogs everywhere. The thing that really gets to me about the plague of frogs isn't even the frogs themselves, it's the noise, uh, because these dudes are really interested in mating. Uh, They are sending out a mating call all the time uh, and at night. Uh, And if you go out by the pool, it gets very loud uh, with a couple frogs out there, just with a couple. And so you imagine tens of thousands of frogs. uh, That is what I think would drive me crazy about the plague of frogs. Uh, So this is what if you, he says, um, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come into your palace, into your bedroom, onto your bed, into the houses of your officials and on your people, into your ovens and your kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. For time's sake, we're not going to read it, but it happens. Okay, this isn't just a threat. This isn't just an idol. Hey, I can do this. Uh, Pharaoh doesn't let God's people go, so God demonstrates his power. The frogs come. Why frogs? What's the point of the frogs? To me, of, of all the plagues, this is kind of the most ridiculous one, right? Like gnats sounds miserable, uh, darkness, thunder and lightning, hail, obviously the plague on the firstborn. Like you go through the other plagues, and it's like, yeah, it boils, like, I don't want any part of that. The frogs just seems almost like comedic. Like, this is out of a comic book or something. Like, this is ridiculous. Well, frogs has a real significance. In the Egyptian culture, frogs were a massively important icon. They symbolized life. They symbolized rebirth because they have tadpoles who then turn into frogs. It represented life after death. Um, They were associated with water, which was a massively important 
part of the Egyptian religious system, which is why the first plague went against the water, uh, because water was seen as the source, source of life. So we have two of the most important religious images of the Egyptians right here. In fact, the Egyptians had a goddess, a frog goddess, named Heket. Uh, and that almost sounds like, like a Zoolander look or something, uh, man. But Heket personified generation, birth, and fertility. Uh, and so God sends a plague of the very thing that they worshiped. He says, you, th you, think, you think you want to bow down before a frog? I'll show you frogs. You think that this thing provides life for you? Notice that it's the goddess of fertility, and God specifically says you're going to have frogs in your bed. Is that an accident? Is that a coincidence? Is that just a, an easy thing to say? No, I think that is a direct hit on this Egyptian goddess of fertility. You think that this thing is worthy of worship? Well, I'm going to put it in your bed. You think that this thing brings fertility? I'm going to put it everywhere that you go. And so if we had time, we could go through each of these plagues and see how they specifically relate to the different Egyptian gods and goddesses. But, but we're not going to have time to do all that today. Um, this is in phase one. This is where the Egyptians, they challenge God. Uh, because even after God produces all these frogs, the Egyptians somehow produce more frogs. Uh, which is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. See, if, if somebody sends a plague against you of frogs, you would think if you're going to demonstrate your power, you would demonstrate it by getting rid of the frogs. But the Egyptians just said, let's just double down on some frogs. Uh, and so they produce even more frogs, which is wild to me. So this is phase one. Phase one comes to an end, and phase two begins in the middle of the next plague. The next plague is the plague of gnats. You ever swallowed a gnat? Some of y'all just gagged. Because uh, you get that feeling in the back of your neck. Somebody said by accident. I didn't think anybody was in here just like eating gnats for protein. Um, right? Uh, like, man, got to get my blood sugar down. I'm going to snack on some gnats. Uh, I don't think any of us are doing that. Um, look at this plague, Exodus chapter 8, verse 18. When the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, so God's already produced the, the gnats, they could not. So the first two plagues and the serpents, the Egyptians could produce them, just not as strong as what God does. Now God says, I'm not even going to let you do anything. God inhibits their demonic powers. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magicians said to Pharaoh, listen to this confession, this is the finger of God. These false prophets, these representatives of these demonic gods come to a point where they realize we can't do anything else. And they say, we're up against a power greater than us. They got it. They make this confection, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. We're going to see this again in chapter 9 if you have time, that even though the sorcerers could not match God's power, Pharaoh's heart was still hard, and he would not turn away from his anger. This brings us to the third phase, the final stage of this conflict. We have a gradual and begrudging recognition of God's superiority. Plague after plague strikes. And there was another part of this that demonstrated God's superiority. It wasn't just the plagues, and it wasn't just that they were directed at the Egyptian gods. It was that the Israelites were spared from all the plagues. 
Side note, this is one reason why I'm not all in on the idea of a pre-trib rapture. I think there could be a pre-trib rapture. I'm not against a pre-trib rapture. But I don't think it's 100% guaranteed because if God wants to spare his people from the things going on around, he can do that. He's demonstrated that. So a lot of the argument for the pre-trib rapture is, hey, we can't be here for all the horrible things that are going to happen. And I'm like, man, if God wants us here, he can protect us in the midst of it. Uh, and so God can do that if he wants to. That's totally unrelated to today's message, but I think it's important to address when we have the opportunity. So we have this gradual begrudging re- recognition of God's superiority. God lets Pharaoh know that he has allowed him to resist him only for the sake of a greater victory. Like, I'm, I'm letting you say no for a season because I'm building to something. I'm crescendoing to something. I'm demonstrating something. We're going to see that here in just a little bit with communion. At the end of the conflict, Pharaoh says this to Moses. He says, go out from among my people in, verse, in chapter 12, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And he says this. He says, and bless me also. So we get to the point where even Pharaoh, even hard-hearted Pharaoh, says, give a shout out to God on my behalf. Pray, pray to God for me that I could be blessed in the middle of this. Um, ultimately, Pharaoh is wrestling with, can I lay down my gods and recognize there's a greater God? And he doesn't. His heart is heart, and he doesn't. But for a moment, we're going to see these little glimpses, these little moments where the plagues hit so hard, where Pharaoh recognizes God is so much greater, where, where, where we see this glimpse, this hope that Pharaoh may eventually turn his heart. The reality is all of us have counterfeit gods that compete for our heart. We don't worship frogs. We don't worship gnats, right? We don't worship all of these things that the Egyptians worshiped, but each of us has some sort of counterfeit God that wrestles for our heart. That might be pleasure. It might be security. It might be money. It might be recognition. It might be adoration. It could be a million different things, but each of us have deep idols, counterfeit gods, that that we struggle with, am I going to give God my whole heart or am I going to give God a piece of my heart? And that's really what we've been talking about throughout this series is what is it that is competing with God for your heart? Because ultimately, what is the bridge to what a beautiful name say? It says he has no rival. He has no equal. Now and forever, he'll be praised. That's not just some words. That is truth. That's reality. There is no rival worthy of allowing competition in my heart. So it can be a challenge to turn from what we have known, what we have given our hearts to. And humbly acknowledge God's greatness over all, submitting everything to him. Tim Keller wrote this in his book called Counterfeit Gods. He says, the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods is to turn back to the true one, the living God. He's the only one who, if you find him, can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. See, all these other counterfeit gods, they can provide something. They've got some power. They've got some pleasure. They've they've got some stuff. Money, man, money can do some stuff for you. Security, it can provide some things for you. Pleasure, man, it does some stuff for you in the moment, in the season. But ultimately what you'll find with any counterfeit God is there is a point where it runs out. 
There is a point where it can no longer provide. For all of these false gods in Egypt, they could produce some serpents, and they could produce some frogs, but there became a point where they couldn't do it anymore. There became a point where their power was inhibited, and it was limited, and there's only one who has the power to continue to sustain. There's only one who is worthy to be honored and glorified and worshiped, and he is Yahweh. It is Jesus Christ. Until we come to grips with the fact that God is greater than any power, any ability, any influence that we have been commanded by or that we can command for ourselves in our own lives, will forever ultimately be in opposition to God, drowning in our own plagues. So what happens to the Egyptian? They're drowning in frogs. They're drowning in gnats. They are drowning in blood. Why? Because all of these things were worshipped by them, and God is saying they're not worth it. They're not worthy. I want to show you one final plague today. It's the last one. We're going to skip plagues 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, unfortunately, for the sake of time. But the last one is so essential and so important. In Exodus chapter 11, it says this. Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of a female slave, <coughs> excuse me, who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. Years ago, we had a rented church building in South Haven. We were called Church on the Horizon when the church was first established. And one Saturday night, I was in my office, and it was a rented facility, so we had a little bit that was permanently ours and then other parts that were rented out to other people different times. And so the city, which owned the building, had rented out uh, part of it for a school dance. And at this school dance, um, heard about seven, eight loud pops, and I just thought it was fireworks. Uh, kind of lived in South Haven, you heard pops all the time, not a big deal, brushed it off, kept working. Well, shortly after the loud pops, I heard wailing. Talking about screams like I've never heard before or since. And what had happened was a young man had been shot and killed in front of the school dance. About 100 feet from where I was sitting at my desk. And those screams, when I think of that, that moment, man, they haunt me. Now multiply that by a million moms, by a million dads wailing over the loss of their firstborn son. Growing up, I am a firstborn son, so this story always hit me as the one who would die. Um, today, I don't read this story as the one who would die, I read this story as the one who would lose a son. Either way, it's rough. Either way, it's awful. It's horrendous to imagine that sort of loss. It says there will be wailing worse than there has ever been or there would ever be. <laughs> Here's what you need to know about this story. God is a God of justice. He is a good God. He is a God who goes to bat for his people. 
80 years before this story takes place. An Egyptian pharaoh took not every firstborn son, but every son that was born to the Hebrews and slaughtered him. And God comes onto the scene after Pharaoh's heart has hardened, after he's refused again and again and again. Everything he's tried, he gets to the point where he tries to set his people free and Pharaoh won't let him. And, and, and we think of it almost like, you know, the Oppenheimer movie, right? Like there's this nuclear bomb that's created and there's this great debate, like should we have dropped the bomb on Japan or should we not have? And, and the, those who advocate dropping the bomb, which I'm one on that side, is that there would have been far greater destruction of life if we hadn't. There had to have been this great demonstration that just shut everything down, and that's why the bomb was dropped. And we can argue about that and debate about that later, but, but, but I, I'm getting to a bigger point. Why would God take the life of all these firstborn sons? He takes the life of the firstborn sons for, for three reasons. One, because it's just because of what Egypt has done to his people. And he is patient, he gave them 80 years to make it right, decades to get it right, to ask for forgiveness. He sent messengers. He called them to make it right. Just let my people go and everything will be okay, but they wouldn't. But also God made a great demonstration of his power where I don't need to send any more plagues. I don't need to bring any more pestilence. I don't need to do anything else to your people. I'm going to demonstrate in such a big way that you're finally going to relent. And so God used the nuclear option. And he takes the life of every firstborn son in Egypt. Verse 7, but among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. So the Egyptians will wail, but there will be no suffering for God's people. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God's going to send a Passover lamb, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. To cover our sins, to make it okay that we don't have to pay the price for our sins the way that Egypt did. Egypt paid a heavy price, a tremendous price for their rebellion, for their rejection. That's not God's heart. That's not God's desire. That's not what God wants. God says, I'm not sending that punishment on anybody else anymore. I'm sending it on my Firstborn son. I want to take a firstborn son from you and hold back mine. But I'm going to let my firstborn die so that yours no longer has to. So that we don't have to lose our son, so that we don't have to lose our lives, so that the angel of death will pass over us. With that context and that mindset, I'm going to invite you very quickly. First couple of rows, come down, grab your communion elements. Come back to your seat. You can grab a seat when you get back. We're going to read another passage. After the first couple of rows come down, the rest can come. Um, make your way back. With an attitude of gratitude, an attitude of reflection on our own lives and what God's doing in our lives, what God's done for us. Grab a seat when you get back.
Sorry, I should have mentioned we do have a gluten-free option. If you need one, it's on this table right over here. To my left, your right. So if you need a gluten-free option, it's there and available for you. As you get back to your seat, I want you just to take a moment to, to reflect. The Bible tells us when we take communion to examine our hearts. Is your heart at a place that it needs to be? Is there a counterfeit God that you're worshiping today? A God of security, a God of pleasure, a God of sex, a God of finance, a God of arrogance, a God of pride, a God of doubt, a God of fear, a God of unforgiveness, of bitterness. Is there a counterfeit God in your heart? And the beautiful thing about communion is it calls us to examine our heart, to look inside. And if there's anything there that doesn't look like Jesus, that doesn't look like God's best, we don't have to pay the price for that. We do have to take our hands off of it. So just a moment, Josh is going to lead us in nothing but the blood after we read this next passage. And as he sings it, if you need to do business with God, I encourage you to do business with God to take care of whatever that may look like, to ask for whatever forgiveness, whatever freedom that you need to walk in. Before we do, I want to read this last passage to you. Exodus chapter 12 tells us this. This is what God says for Israel. He says, Moses this. He says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Skipping down to verse 7, it says, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night there, they eat the meat, roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Skipping to verse 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt, because I am the Lord. He's not just judging Egypt. He's judging the demonic gods of Egypt. He is demonstrating his greatness and his power. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you. When I strike Egypt, it's the power of the blood, the, lo- the blood of the land that's sacrificed, symbolizing, foreshadowing Jesus. In fact, when we fast forward, Jesus is actually sacrificed during the Passover. This is not accidental. This is not coincidental. This is not convenient. This was God's plan from the very beginning that he would demonstrate there is a Passover land. There is a blood that covers you and causes death to pass over you. In other words, each of us, because of our own sin, we deserve death. But because of the blood of Jesus, that death will pass over us. I'm going to ask Josh to lead us in a couple verses of this song. As he does, you can stand and sing with us. But if you need to talk to God, talk to him right where you're at. We're going to partake of communion just after these first two verses. Sing, oh, pray. 
take that cup in your right hand. We're going to pray over it. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that on the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup. Excuse me, he took bread. We do bread first. Man, I'm backwards. Changing it up. Do the bread. I'm sorry. He said he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. The same way that lamb was, was sliced apart. There was intricately displayed after it had been broken. Jesus, the perfect lamb, the Passover lamb was broken for me. The clean, dying for the unclean. The perfect, dying for the fallen. God, the creator, dying for the creation. It's so backwards. It's so scandalous. It's so incredible that Jesus would be broken for us. He said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. Today we remember. God, forgive us for the moments we forget. God, forgive us for allowing our heart to be drawn to anything but you. God, forgive us for counterfeit gods of recreation, counterfeit gods of, of pleasure, counterfeit gods of security, counterfeit gods of significance, of arrogance, of unforgiveness, God, of any counterfeit God we can create. God, forgive us. Thank you for reminding us there is one true God. There is one God worthy to be praised. There is one God who is greater, and he is Jesus Christ. He is good, and he died for us. Thank you for allowing your son to be broken so that mine doesn't have to be. Thank you for allowing your son to be broken so I don't have to be, so I can be made whole again. We worship you for it. We glorify you in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can take the bread. Then it says, after dinner, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup 
is the new covenant in my blood. So as often as you take this drink and you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. There's a new covenant. We don't have to sacrifice animals to be right with God. We don't have to constantly go through another year of now I've got to make this sacrifice for this year, for this week, for this day. There is one sacrifice once and for all, and his name was Jesus. And it covers all my sin, all my unrighteousness, all my rebellion, all my forgetfulness. He has done it. It is done. It is finished. The perfect Passover lamb poured out all of his blood, and that blood has not lost its power. It does not fall short. It is not diminished. It is just as strong today, not just to forgive sin, but to destroy sin, to break the chains of bondage of sin as it ever was. Father, we thank you for the cup. We thank you for the blood of Jesus. We thank you for this symbol that Jesus did not withhold his blood, that you did not withhold your son. God, you gave us your very best because it was the only way we could be made right. It was the only way we could be welcome in your presence, God, because our goodness would never get us there. So you gave us this blood to ascribe Jesus' goodness, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' purity, Jesus' holiness. You put it on us just as you covered the doorposts of the Israelites and said the angel of death will pass over God. Death will pass over us. The grave has no hold. Hell has no power because of the blood of Jesus. We thank you for it. We worship you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's take the cup. Josh is going to lead us in a couple more verses of that song. I challenge you to worship like somebody who believes the angel of death has passed over you, like somebody who believes that the blood of Jesus is still powerful and has set you free. Come on, let's lift our hands to heaven and let's worship him today. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Glory, glory, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. All my praise. All my praise for this I bring. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other sounds i know nothing but the blood of jesus single precious oh precious is the flow that makes me white as no other sounds I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing that first verse one more time and close this out. Let's sing it like we mean it, like we believe that the blood of Jesus has set us free. Thank you, Jesus. 
we worship you, we magnify you, we honor you. In what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. In what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Sing, oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. 